Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher, and today we have a returning guest, Arthur Hagland. And today we are going to be talking about the basics of Calvinism. And uh, just for a disclaimer, neither of us are Calvinists, but we have spent a good deal of our lives talking to Calvinists. I'm a former Calvinist, so, uh, you know, I can go back to, uh, well, I was first a Lutheran. We kind of covered that on the first uh, time I was on. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I have a hard Reformation background, and everything that I was taught was all Reformed, Lutheran and then Calvinist, Baptist, and, you know, it wasn't until I... I got away from that um, that I I went into name and claim it. So I mean, my whole history is is reformed. So I don't I don't really have to come at it from the outside. That's true. You got a Calvinist background. I myself I do not have a Calvinist background, but I've gone to Calvinist churches for probably the majority of my life. So modern Calvinism it has historical origins. And what I would point to is second and third century thoughts, especially centered around the teachings of Augustine. Augustine had these ideas about God. He had the idea that God was the greatest good possible. And he's got an entire book about this on the good. And in this idea about God, God couldn't change. God had to live eternally outside of time. God couldn't be relational to anyone. He had to be timeless. He had to be perfect simplicity and perfect acity. So God can't change. God can't relate. God, there, There's no relating to God in any sense of the word. It should be noted that, uh, that the philosophical views of Augustine didn't come from the Bible at all. Absolutely not. And so Augustine, throughout his writings, he references Plotinus and Neoplatonism quite a lot. And he says literally that Platonism gave him all his theology. The one thing that the Bible gave him was charity. And what he meant by this was in his conversion to Christianity, he figured out that Platonism was false and Christianity was true because Platonism did not have the divine spark. And that's what he saw in Jesus. In Platonism, everyone was trying to return to the intellectual realm. There are three hypostasis. So there's the immutable God, there's the intellectual realm, and there's the realm of the soul. And a good Platonist tries to return from the soul to the intellectual, but they need a divine spark to do that. And Augustine saw Jesus as that divine spark. So if any listener is following along and understands kind of the basics of Calvinism, this is Calvinist regeneration that someone has to have a divine spark in order to return to the intellectual realm. And this is why I just had a discussion with a Calvinist the other day. Um, I said, Calvinism, it's just mysticism. This idea that, you know, you see those R.C. Sproul quotes, they're just floating around everywhere, right? And what's their major claims with him, do you know? Well, I uh, I, I can't stand to listen to Sproul. I really can't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, He's just so happy to have somebody else say his name, and he just looks so pleased that there's an audience for him. I just, I don't know, he's the epitome of arrogance and, and uh, self-worship, and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm probably being, you know, too harsh and I'm judging him as a person, but, I mean, every time I I see him in an interview, that's what I see, and, and so I don't watch a lot of his stuff. I On my Facebook profile, I actually did go through one of his teaching classes, 
and kind of tore into that, where he kind of thought that he put the last nail into the lid of quote unquote Arminianism. <laughs> and, and, and I found that R.C. Sproul practices a whole lot of uh, fallacy. He will go to the Greek when it's convenient, and if the Greek's not convenient, mm-hmm. he will he will hit heavy on the English. And I, one thing I like about King James, I'm not a King James onlyist, not at all. I use about 40 different Bibles in six, seven languages when I study. But he bases doctrine on the italicized words, which are words that are not in the Greek. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, Ugh. and it said, you whom he hath quickened. Yes, the you whom he hath quickened is not there. So that's what you're leaning on. You're leaning on air there, and you're falling over on it. Yeah, I, I definitely well, I hear you. Say, yeah, I wanted to say, um, if you go to the Institutes, Calvin's Institutes, I did, I like having it in the PDF format. If you do a word search, it tells you how many times the word is there. And Calvin cites Augustine more than twice as often as he mentions Christ. And much of the mention of Christ is not Christ saying something, but, I mean, even even a verse that would just have, and Jesus walked. I mean, that's not Jesus teaching anything, but things like that are mentioned and counted as one of the times the name Jesus is used in the Institute. So, but uh, it's almost universally when he mentions Augustine, it's, and I agree with the great Augustine when he said this. I mean, Augustine is much right. more the basis than the Bible of the Institute. I got a paper in front of me, and it's on Augustine and Calvin, and the paper says this. In his study, so this is citing a study, Augustine, in the work of John Calvin, that's the name of the study, Lucenius Smiths reckons that 1,700 explicit references and 2,400 unreferenced quotations or paraphrases of Augustine. That is a that lot. That would be in his entire work. All his works, yes. Yes. Yeah, John Calvin drew directly on this Augustinian mysticism. You have Augustine, he's out there, and he's teaching rural peasants to introspectively try to ascend to the one. Introspective meditation, it's mysticism. Uh, Augustine had lived apart from his mother, who was a wealthy Christian, at least in name, and she was supporting her libertine son when he was out doing whatever he was doing. He had a common-law wife and a child. Well, Mommy got tired of his playing around, and she told him, you come back here and you get back involved in the church, or I'm cutting off your allowance, basically. So he was not allowed to bring his child and his common-law wife. Mommy picked out a wife for Augustine. He never had a child with her. He, through her wealthy influence, became a bishop. Now, some people cite that he had a conversion experience. Uh, I don't consider that Augustine ever was saved. If mm-hmm. he was saved, there's no way that he could have the Bible, that he could have the available writings of uh, the Old and New Testament and continue in the philosophies that were not scriptural. Absolutely. And and Augustine, he, he describes his conversion experience. And the interesting note is his conversion isn't as much a conversion to Christianity as it is a conversion to celibacy. Celibacy. And that was a key Platonist 
virtue. They were, tr- they were going around trying to convert everyone they could to chastity. And, and why? Why? Because that's denying the material. And remember, the material is the enemy of the spiritual. And they got this dualistic concept where the material and the spiritual are different, and we need to disclaim the material, and we need to focus on the spiritual, this ascension theology. Yeah, that's what it sounds like, an ascended master who is, who is so spiritual, he's overcome the needs of the, uh, of the flesh. Yeah, and so, so literally speaking, the origins of Calvinism is 2nd and 3rd century mysticism. And we see that in how they treat, just how they read the Bible, what they understand about God in the Bible, and uh, definitely their teachings about God's relationship to man. So I'd like to move us now to how do they read the Bible? Well, my view, and it's not just my view, it's easy to be seen, but the thing of it is Calvinists are not unique in this, but do they practice verse theology? If it's found between a set of numbers, it's a Lego block. You can unclick it. You can get a bunch of them and assemble a doctrine out of it. They're context-free doctrinal statements, which, of course, that's not rightly dividing the scriptures. The chapter and verse uh, separations in the Bible were mainly and only used as a place to follow along. They were a bookmark. They were mileage markers on the freeway, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And what has happened is that People even say, do you have a scripture to support that? And they mean, do you have a verse? Well, verses just don't exist. Uh, Paul didn't write Romans 1.1. I, Paul, (laughs) he didn't do that. It was a letter. The whole thing is its own context. Inside the letter, he will jump from subject to subject like a long letter will do. Mm -hmm. But what we have is the Calvinists that will rely on this verse theology. That's why you have people like Matt Slick that will just machine gun verse citations at you, and then there, I've proved my case. That's not rightly dividing scripture. The thing I find funny is they take these interpretable, these vague verses that are complex. Most people who are listening to Jesus, they didn't understand what he was saying, and then he had to usually later tell his disciples what he is saying, because he didn't speak straightforwardly. And so they'll take statements by Jesus and then then just assume on top of it Calvinism, allowing no other possibility, and then they will interpret all other texts that we have throughout the Bible in light of these little clips or these little sayings. It can't work any other way. When I uh, was a Calvinist, a uh, man from my church, because it was a non-denominational church, and there were Calvinists, and there were non-Calvinists, and there were Charismatics, and there were non-Charismatics. I mean, it was a real hodgepodge at this one church that I was at. And uh, a guy told me, uh, well, you're a heretic. Where'd that come from, dude? I believe in Jesus. He says, because you believe this. You believe that God predetermined who's going to go to hell and who's going to go to heaven. You don't believe in free will or anything like that. And I'm like, well, yeah, but I thought, you know, we're both Christians, but... How can you be saying the exact opposite? It just, it can't be true that opposites are true. I mean, you're saying Jesus died for everyone. I'm saying he only died for a few people. So one of us has to be wrong. So I started examining, started reading the Bible, and, man, these verses are there. Everything I was taught is there. How can I be wrong if it's there? Well, read above it. 
Read a couple of verses above that. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, he's not talking about that at all. I mean, it's just like, uh, you know, one person said, uh, well, if you're going to read the Bible that way, just do this. Uh, Judas hung himself, go and do thou likewise. <laughs> <laughs> Curse God and die. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, if you're not going to, if you're not going to, treat the letters that were written as letters that were written. If you're going to make confetti out of them and make little fortune cookie strips out of the verses, well, how can you build a solid doctrine out of that? Yeah, so I was uh, debating this Calvinist once, and we are talking about 1 Samuel 2. And 1 Samuel 2, it's an interesting story. We got Eli, and we got his sons. And the Calvinist was trying to say that God micromanages everything. God controls everything. God is sovereign. Uh, that's their theology. And he said, look here, He in First Samuel 2, he doesn't want Eli's sons to repent. He wants them to be punished. I'm like, okay, why does he not want them to repent to be punished? Because he's mad at them. And here in First Samuel 2.30, it says, therefore the Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. So God is so angry, he's revoking a previous promise in order to punish these people. I don't think these people are being micromanaged by God. That's just not the context. Oh, no, Matt, Matt Slick brought up the, uh, the thing. Well, it says that there will never be sacrifice forever. Well, if Jesus paid for their sins, then... Jesus is contradicting the the prophet here. Yeah, except that's not the context. Context wasn't about Christ. It was about the sacrifices that they were doing in Israel at that time. Mm. And I can guarantee you that they never sacrificed for that, that guy's family. So, yeah, so so context is important. And we were talking a little bit before the podcast started. And we need to not read the Bible like it's a special book. We need to read the Bible with just normal reading comprehension, like, like anyone who picks up the Bible should be able to read it normally. You don't need some sort of spiritual elect understanding. You should be able to just read and understand it. Paul said, because of our ministry, because of what we believe, because we are so darn sure of everything, everything we write, we write with great plainness. I mean, I've had people tell me everything in the Bible happens in three deep levels. Everything that God does, he does three times. And I immediately said, when are the next two Jesuses coming? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. So the Calvinists, they don't understand context. They, they, they stray away from context. They try to use their overriding principles that are, that are tenuously ripped out of verses that are out of context. And they use it to plaster over the entire Bible, over the entire context. I notice also they hijack words. Like, here's an example yeah. in modern English. I had a friend in college who was a leftist, and he wrote a column about liberal. He says, I don't understand why liberal is a bad word. I looked it up in the dictionary, and it says to be generous. It's like, in American history, you know who the liberals were? They were the libertarians. The word was hijacked by the progressives, and then it uh, took on these, uh, you know, these bad connotations. The word was hijacked. So a word was taken, and the meaning was changed and misapplied. And that's what happens a lot with Calvinists in the Bible. 
election now you mean like is the word sovereign. Like the word sovereign, <laughs> the word sovereign, because sovereign. You think about like a sovereign king, and does he control everything his subjects do ever? No. What he does is he acts as judge. They come to him with their problems, and he decides other problems. That's sovereignty. But in Calvinism, uh, uh-uh. God is meticulously controlling everything. That's their sovereignty. Their election. I mean, we have an election coming up. Uh, what does election mean? We're, we're, we're choosing people based on what? Nothing? Nothing that they do? Oh, yeah, yeah. Unconditional election. Well, that's not what the Bible shows. Noah found grace because he was an upright man in his generation. I mean, so he was chosen. He was elected there. Well, it says that, the, that uh, Jacob was uh, elected not having done good or bad. Yes, and what was his election? It wasn't salvation. It was, okay, I promised Abraham that I'm going to make a nation out of him. And so here he's got a son, and he's going to have two sons. So who are those going to be? His grandsons. It's going to be two of them. Well, let's see. I have a choice of two. God's steering there. And the Bible said, elect according to foreknowledge. God didn't say any, meeny, miny, mo, and got lucky that he picked Jacob <laughs> instead of Esau. Yeah, and he and, picked the right man for the job. And what bad happened in Esau's life? Nothing bad happened in his life. He lived a pretty prosperous, happy life. It wasn't like he was discarded. Yeah, so, and, he, and he did not personally serve his brother. Yeah, and so so that's another one of our other points of how Calvinists read the Bible. They fail to understand metaphor hyperbole, allusions, illustrations. Romans yeah. says Jacob and Esau are in your womb. Is that referring to individuals? Did Esau serve Jacob? That that never happened. That never happened. Esau, Jacob was afraid of Esau. And one of my favorite stories in the Bible is Jacob is meeting Esau. And he's so scared, he takes all his family and then he like assigns values to them. He's like, "Oh, the servants are the most expendable, so we'll put them first. And my kids, <laughs> they're the least expendable. Expendable. We'll put them last, and then we'll walk in single file. So that that way, if we start getting killed, then all the people who I care most about, they can escape first. <laughs> <laughs> he will just his arm will get tired from swinging the sword before he gets to me. <laughs> we'll get a chance to escape. It'll be like all our servants are the cannon fodder and." <laughs> So, yeah, it's Esau never served Jacob, and those are national prophecies. Those are just about... Well, that's the thing. Paul goes to... Paul puts internal references. Remember, Paul didn't go, I'm writing scriptures. (laughs) He didn't do that. He's writing a letter to people that he was in charge of their spiritual development and doctrine, and when he says scripture, he's talking about Genesis to Malachi. Mm Mm-hmm. And so when he refers to Scripture, he starts talking in, in what we call Romans 7, 1, he starts talking to the people that know the law. And for 7, 8, 9, he's going on talking to that same group, and here he is mentioning uh, the election of uh, Jacob over Esau. So what do we have to do? We have to go to Genesis. And the, the children were fighting in her womb, and she went, and the Lord said, mm-hmm. in your womb are... Two babies, no. He said, in your womb are two nations and two peoples. And the older, which he just said, antecedent nation peoples, will serve the younger. And that's the way God looked at it. Obviously, they were babies, 
but that wasn't the point of the prophetic word that was being spoken about them. So uh, one of the more funny examples is uh, James White in Jeremiah 18. He writes an entire book on the potter and the clay, and he and in Jeremiah 18, it has the illustration of the potter and clay, and the Calvinists use this for God meticulously controlling everything. But the thing is that within the very text that they quote, the parable is explained, and the parable is explained that God responds to human actions. God's God's responsive, not God's controlling everything. God puts a (laughs) one-for-one from his example to real life. Uh, And if you notice, he never ever says that he created the nation for destruction or created the nation for blessing, Mm -hmm. but he says upon the nations that he has proclaimed destruction or proclaimed a blessing, and then it says the clay is marred. What is the mar? The nation repenting of either goodness or evil. Right. And then what happens? He starts to reform it. What does that mean? That he changes his proclamation. I will now do good to the ones I destroyed, and I will now destroy the ones I proclaim good for. God oh. <laughs> himself explains it, and they're like, no, he doesn't understand. <laughs> it's pretty bad, uh, just, just the way that they read the text. And it's always with their underlying assumptions taking precedence over what the text says. And so what I like to do sometimes is challenge the people that I'm debating. I said, okay, let's say we just grab 10 people who aren't Christians, and uh, they just have normal reading comprehension skills. We could just ask 10 people at the mall to read this passage. What would they say? What would an average reader, how would they read this text? And the Calvinist, you know what their default response is? Oh, they're not Christian. Uh, the natural man cannot receive the things of God. <laughs> oh, exactly. Oh, they 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 can't read the text because they're not uh, spiritual. They're not enlightened. They don't have the the spark of regeneration. They're not regenerated. Oh, it's like so. What what you're telling me is uh, that their reading comprehension of this text is going to be wrong. And in order to un- actually understand this text, you you have to discard normal reading comprehension and then approach it with some sort of spiritual presuppositions that only you have and no one else has. Be- because they're That imp- is the cult aspect of it. Every pseudo-Christian cult does that. You're elect. You're in this group because God chose you. We have secret knowledge. All objections are objections because they don't understand, so you can discard all objections. If they understood, they would accept. The fact that they don't accept is proof that they don't understand. They're implicitly admitting that normal reading comprehension standards says the text is the opposite of their theology, which they they just don't get that. That's true. All right. If you don't already believe this, you won't get the proof of what you're supposed to believe. Let's, uh, Let's move on from how Calvinists read the Bible. And let's talk about just like their basic concepts about God. Who is God fundamentally in Calvinism? Fundamentally in Calvinism, God is a being that above all other things is a pride monster. A pride monster. So you're... Well, he has to be glorified for every single one of his attributes, which uh, one of them happens to be wrath. God was sitting around hadn't created anything, and he was just so full of wrath. I need to create things so they can see my wrath and praise me for it. So he created everything really perfect, 
And he's like, dang it, everything's too perfect. I don't have anything to put my wrath upon. So I made a righteous roadblock that I got to, I know, I'll make that guy sin. And then I'll hammer him. And he'll praise me for getting hammered. Absolutely. John Calvin, single events are so regulated by God and all events so proceed from his determined counsel that nothing happens fortuitously. And they, they tie this to God being, as we talked about before in Platonism, that God is the ultimate good. God is the perfect being, and so all of reality needs to reflect that. So, so creation and Calvinism all has to lead back to God being perfect. So this, this world, the way it's set up, there, sh- there can be no greater good than what exists, because that would demean fundamentally God's glory or greatness or perfection in Calvinism. And so John Calvin's idea was that sin glorifies God because sin illustrates certain principles. Sin being a a breaking of the law, sin being something that's wrong, something that God does not intend or want. I don't don't know. It's like uh, saying murder glorifies the judge at the murder trial. Yeah, and uh, one of uh, James White's arguments, I think you sent me the video, he said that God not saving all people demonstrates God's choice, because if God did save all people, then God wouldn't have a choice in the matter. And so he's trying to elevate this principle of choice over people being saved. He thinks that the concept illustrates greatness, which he attributes to God. He was taught by a professor while he was at school coming up, and uh, the professor wrote on the board, God has three choices, and in only one of these choices is God free. So God's choices are he can save everyone, he can save no one, or he can save some. Then White switches the words from what God can do to either he must or he can't. So if God must save everyone, well, then he's not free because there's something making him do it. And if he can't save anyone, then he's not free because he's barred from something. Mm -hmm. Thus, God is only allowed to save some people who he chooses. Well, I mean, that's just bunk from the get-go because if somebody sets three choices in front of you, your freedom is on this side of the choice. Doing what you chose is you fulfilling your freedom because you chose to do that. And I, I distilled it down to two kittens that God can only save one kitten. Now, if we were to expand that from three choices to four choices, instead of saying God could save some, some of the kittens, well, now God can, he can save both kittens, he can save no kitten, he can save kitten A, or he can save kitten B. Now, using the logic that White's professor, and now White, tries to forward, well, if God acts upon any of his choices, he's no longer free. So it doesn't matter that even if he says God remains free if he saves some, because if God makes a list to save some, once he starts doing that, he puts himself in the same no longer free because he's not free to save the ones that he decided not to save. It doesn't get around anything. It's a, it's a false logic. Mm-hmm. And the irony is, the irony is that Calvinists don't even believe God is free. God is timeless. 
God is immutable, God is perfect simplicity, and God is pure acity. And uh, this is going to be a part one of our two-part episode on Calvinism. And once we get to that part two, we will talk about those attributes and how those play into the Calvinist concept of God. Well, I wanted to say uh, one other thing about the Calvinist idea that an unsaved person can't read the Bible and understand what's going on because of the fleshly man can't receive the things of God. There is a James White, uh, Michael Brown debate that you can see on YouTube where James White says, even atheists understand that God is in control of all things. Well, if the natural man cannot receive the things of God, and the unsaved natural man is agreeing with your doctrine, <laughs> then your doctrine is not the things of God. It's convenient. He's got himself in the foot there. <laughs> Whenever uh, his critics will agree with him, then he'll he'll quote them without understanding the irony. <laughs> so, so what we'll do is we'll end this part, and then we'll uh, go directly into our second part after this. So thank you for listening to... God is open. If you have any questions or comments on this episode, please put that on the God is open website or start a thread on the God is open Facebook companion page. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.